The final investigator I met with was Dr. Michelle Fanal. And to begin, she commented on follow-up data presented at ASH evaluating the use of the anti-PD-1 antibodies pembrolizumab and nivolumab in Hodgkin lymphoma. When I think about the PD-1 inhibitors and I compare and contrast them to, say, brintuximabidotin, what you see across both the nivolumab and pembrolizumab clinical trials is that the complete remission rates are a little bit lower. So you're centering more in the 20% range rather than the 30% range. But what's different for the PD-1 inhibitors when you compare and contrast back to brintuximabidotin is that even if you're not in complete remission and you're, let's say, in partial remission, those partial remissions actually can be very durable. So those partial remissions could be lasting greater than a year's time which is different than brituximab-vidotin, where generally, if you're in partial remission, generally the duration of the response usually centers around more around the seven to eight month time period. That's really interesting. Anything that came out in terms of toxicity issues, you know, across the board with checkpoint inhibitors, I think we're seeing, you know, less with PD-1 antibodies or PD-L1 antibodies than say with anti-CGLA-4 and not too much. What about in Hodgkin lymphoma? So I think leading into the Hodgkin lymphoma trials, there had been concerns about the itis types of side effects, so thyroiditis or pneumonitis, et cetera. But I can tell you as someone who's treated now many patients on the clinical trials, both for nivolumab and pembrolizumab for Hodgkin lymphoma, patients actually do very well. So there are some patients who might need to go on thyroid replacement therapy because of a T4 level that drops down somewhat. But that's pretty minimal. And in terms of like major other itis complications like pneumonitis or pericarditis, et cetera, those toxicities are very minimal. So these treatments are truly very well tolerated. So certainly consistent with what we're hearing with other cancers. So if you look at what we know right now, you know, putting it all together, knowing that there's a very high, I guess, what the overall response rate, what is it centering around right now? So the overall response rate across both of the trials is centering somewhere between the mid-60 to mid-80 percent range. The hope is that if you could develop a highly successful combination, not only in terms of high complete remission rates, but very long durability of those remission rates, could you potentially then come up to the frontline setting and begin to move away from standard of care chemo. I don't think that we're there yet, but I think that as each new drug is being approved, then we become closer and closer to that. I think that where we're looking in terms of initial approval for Hodgkin lymphoma would be for the PD-1 inhibitors to be approved likely in a third line setting. So it's unclear whether or not they're gonna be approved, I guess in the same line of therapy that brintuximabidotin is approved for, or if they would be approved for one line later. I think the way that the two pivotal trials were designed, because you didn't in all arms need to have received brintuximabidotin to be eligible, that likely what would occur from that data would be that these agents would be approved in the third line setting. So either for patients who have not been able to go through an autologous stem cell transplant because they continue to have disease activity despite, let's say, ABVD, and then let's say, ICE chemotherapy, or even maybe even bevodotin-based combination treatment, or if the patient, let's say, received therapy with ABVD, ICE, went through an autologous stem cell transplant, but then has further disease relapse. If you could, are there patients, older patients in their 80s, 90s, you don't want to give chemo to, where you'd want to think about either a checkpoint inhibitor or bevodotin up front? 
So there's already data for bevacizumab as monotherapy up front. And what was seen is that there's a high response rate, but if you just use bevacizumab as monotherapy, the duration of those responses tends to be centered around 10 months time frame. I think what you might see as the next type of evolution for clinical trials is actually then taking bevacizumab and adding it potentially to let's say Pembro or Nivo frontline setting patients let's say who have low ejection fractions or decreased DLCO pulmonary function test values or for whatever reason are not felt to be good chemotherapy candidates and then looking at let's say a doublet a targeted agent doublet there for that patient population first and then if you could see very high levels of benefit then you could potentially think about doing a clinical trial for patients who otherwise could actually tolerate chemotherapy what about accessing these drugs obviously they're available for melanoma for lung cancer Have you attempted or So I have, you know, certain patients because of certain laboratory parameters or for whatever different reasons might not meet eligibility for either the two PD1 inhibitor trials in classical Hodgkin lymphoma. So typically now since these agents are already approved been generally quite successful about potentially having these agents approved for therapy off clinical trial. And so, I mean, both of these abstracts from ASH I think provide further evidence for why to look at these agents. Typically, you would contact the insurance company, you would request approval, you potentially then would send along additional data from ASH, and both companies also have a patient assistance program. Moving over more towards bevacizumab and maybe hopefully the future Hodgkin lymphoma, there was a paper combining bevacizumab with bendamustine. Can you comment on that? Right so there is a paper that was presented by Dr. Sawas where he looked at combining brentuximab and plus bendamustine different than a previously presented trial combining brentuximab and with bendamustine this was a combination of hodgkin lymphoma patients and anaplastic large cell lymphoma And these rather than being second line treatment patients these were patients who had had multiple different lines of therapy i think the number of lines of therapy was about 6 and so likely because of that the overall response rate was about 70% but the cr rate was only about 20% so that cr rate of 20% is actually less than what you would see with brentuximab and alone and even less than what you would see with bendamustine alone so typically bendamustine you in hodgkin lymphoma based on sloan kettering's data you would see a cr rate of about 30% or so one of the reasons why this is probably the case for this particular patient population is that a number of the patients actually had previously been treated either with bendamustine as monotherapy or brentuximab vidotin as monotherapy and basically went on to the combination because they had disease resistance that had developed to the monotherapy approach and so for that reason i think it's a little bit difficult to cross compare and say well you know the combination was actually inferior to monotherapy What's the bottom line is this a combination that you know you think has a future? So I think that it definitely has a future in the second line setting for classical Hodgkin lymphoma. So when you look at data in the second line setting you're seeing overall response rate to about 90%, CR rates so about 83%. And I think what this data shows from this different clinical trial is that let's say if you have a patient and they previously let's say had gone into remission with bendamustine and they have hodgkin lymphoma 
This data shows that potentially, even if their disease comes out of remission with that agent, that if you add that second agent in, that you potentially can reverse that resistance and get the patient back into remission. What about abstract 519, post-transplant outcome of a phase two study of bevidotinous first-line salvage and relapse refractory prior to transplant, and also the regimen bevidotin plus ESHAP, or I guess BRESHAP. Right. So those were two different approaches that were also presented at ASH. So I believe the first one that you mentioned, that's from the City of Hope group. That one was done by Rob Chen. And so what Rob Chen's data basically, when presented, very much overlaps with the prior publication now from Allison Moskowitz. As you recall, Allison Moskowitz looked at the weekly base brentuximab and dosing versus Rob Chen looks at the more standard dosing, which is the Q3-week dosing. He saw a CR rate that was basically nearly equivalent to the Allison Moskowitz previously published data the complete remission rate with weekly based brentuximabidote and pre-transplant as monotherapy is like 33%. From the City of Hope data, from Dr. Chen's data, it's about 35%. So really, both studies really come together to further provide evidence of consideration of monotherapy of brentuximabidote in the pre-transplant setting. And there's actually, I think, reasonably good potential that within NCCN guidelines, you're going to see a further update that would actually bring in brentuximabidotin monotherapy into the second-line setting. So while it won't necessarily change the FDA approval language to use it in a third-line setting, the compendium-based language would then allow for use in the second-line setting based on both of these trials. I'm curious what you think about this strategy, particularly outside a trial setting. I thought it sounded like it makes sense. You know, you skip the chemo, but I haven't seen that much excitement about it, really. I think because the CR rate's not that high. I'm not sure. Do you think it, do you like it? So in some ways, right, you're going to a patient and you're saying, let's say you're seeing a patient out in the community. So you're saying, well, I can give you ice chemotherapy and give you like a 75% chance that this will take care of the disease and you'll be able to have the disease be in a complete remission and proceed on to an autologous stem cell transplant. Or if you prefer to try a non-chemo strategy, I can give you brentuximabidotin, but there's like a two-thirds chance that that's not necessarily going to be enough by itself. And so I need to add in something anyway. And so I think that most patients usually prefer, especially Hodgkin lymphoma patients, tend to prefer the quickest way of getting there. And so that's one reason, I think, for decreased uptake of at least using monotherapy. And I think the second is that there's good data for combinations now. So the brentuximabidote and bendamustine second-line data that was presented not at this ASH, but the prior ASH showed a CR rate of about 80 to 85%. And so therefore, that data more approaches what you would get to with, let's say, ICE. And so if you're going to be using a brentuximabidote-based strategy in the second-line setting, it would probably lie more for combination than as monotherapy. But from your point of view, if the patient says, hey, you know, I'd like to see if I could skip the chemo, are you okay with it? I'm okay I mean, with that. But I think to me, philosophically, I guess the way I also see it is that although you're skipping the chemotherapy with ice, really in the end, you're doing chemotherapy at time frame of the transplant anyway. So you're not necessarily like skipping the chemo really. Right, right. Well, I guess it comes into this concept of it kind of doesn't matter how you get to the CR, you buy that? Right. 
Right. And I think some patients, where I can see patients liking it is that the notion that then I'm not exposing my body, right, to so much chemotherapy. It's not necessarily going to take away the need for the stem cell transplant, but at least I'm saving exposure from additional cycles of chemotherapy leading into the stem cell transplant. How about abstract 582? So this was looking at the combination of brintuximab-vidotin plus ESHAP pre-transplant, although I think that they also did allow for some patients to be post-transplant or not be planned for transplant. So it was a little bit of a combination. What they had shown at ASH is that for the about 17 patients who were patients with Hodgkin lymphoma pre-transplant where they gave this combination treatment, that there was actually a very high CR rate of about 94%. So if you do then a comparison and contrast, although this study is still ongoing and data is early, if this would continue to hold up to be true, then the CR rate actually with brentuximavidote and ESHAP would be higher than with brentuximavidote and bendamustine and would be higher than monotherapy. But ESHAP is also... I would say generally a regimen that has more adverse events than bendamustine-based therapy in combination with brentuximavidotin. So where do things stand with the big phase three trial looking at incorporating bevidotin up front in HL? That trial is actually just recently closed. And so as you recall, the endpoint is set to be basically for a three-year progression-free survival improvement. And so we're probably not going to hear a lot about that trial, probably for about another two years time frame. But that trial is closed. And then the next planned trial for basically similar patient population, advanced stage patients, is going to be the nivolumab plus ABVD clinical trial. Interesting. The bevidotin trial, does it look to you like it's going to be powered adequately? Oh, yes. As you recall, when Joe Connors had presented the update of the brentuximavidotin plus AVD, the phase one data, the two to three year PFS mark was basically at 92 to 93 percent in terms of long term follow up for those patients. And so therefore, if that data from the phase one combination would basically match up with the combination and the randomized, large randomized phase three echelon one trial, then that endpoint should definitely be met. So let's talk a little bit about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And I was curious about your thoughts about a phase one trial from the Alliance looking at Everlimus and diffuse large B-cell combined with RCHOP21. So this is carrying on with the Mayo Clinic's experience with Everlimus as basically initially a monotherapy in the relapse setting for not only Hodgkin lymphoma, but patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, including large B-cell lymphoma. So this trial combined Everlimus with standard of care, our CHOP, and what they saw was actually a very high complete remission rate, so nearly 100%. It was like 96 97%. And also unique was that the patient seemed to have an equal chance of going into complete remission, whether or not they had GCB or non-GCB diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So first of all, right now, both in Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, how do you use Everlimus or mTOR inhibitors, if at all, outside a trial setting? So I would say they're typically at this time frame used generally mostly within clinical trial setting. So from your point of view, you're not impressed enough to consider it outside a trial? So right now, at least this trial, right, it's a phase one trial. So you would need to have a confirmatory trial further. But to me, 
if they could maintain that high a complete remission rate, that would be actually quite remarkable. Well, what I was thinking about was more relapse refractory disease. So in the relapse refractory setting, we would consider to use Everlimus off clinical trial, but generally right now, as you know, within lymphoma, there's so many different agents ongoing either as monotherapy or doublet-based treatment approaches in the relapse setting. There's generally a clinical trial ongoing for this patient, right? Within the large B-cell lymphoma setting, there's a lot of interest in CAR T-cell therapy approaches. So Everlimus, I think, is definitely a valid approach to use as monotherapy, but most times these patients would be eligible for other clinical trials as well. And what do we know about the activity of Everlimus as a single agent in relapse refractory disease in both Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma? So the Hodgkin lymphoma data had shown actually a very high overall response rate, nearing about 63%, 65% is my recollection. For non-Hodgkin lymphoma, my recollection is that it's a little bit lower. It's more towards maybe the 30 to 40% range, but still a respectable number. And the responses, are they of you know reasonable duration and clinical value? So in the relapse non-Hodgkin lymphoma setting, I recall that the responses had lasted maybe not quite like around six months time period. So not necessarily years and years, but potentially as a treatment approach that would at least give the patients a reasonable duration of remission with also the advantage of it being an oral agent. Is there anything biologically about either Hodgkin or non-Hodgkin lymphoma that would make you think that an mTOR inhibitor might be effective, you know, PI3 kinase mutations or whatever? Right. So PI3 kinase pathway is known to be a very important pathway, particularly in Hodgkin lymphoma and then also T-cell lymphoma and basically across multiple different lymphoma types. And so when you think about the pathway, right, you could either target from high up, so basically a PI3 kinase inhibitor directly, and there's multiple of those undergoing evaluation, or you can target more downstream, so an AKT inhibitor or an mTOR inhibitor. And no one honestly knows where it's better to target. So we've seen data also, we're talking about bevodotin and Hodgkin lymphoma, we have seen it in diffuse large B-cell in both CD30 positive and negative patients. And we did see a phase two study of bevodotin with RCHOP in diffuse large B-cell, 51 patients. What'd you think about that? So it's difficult to, I think, cross-compare these studies because the study that we just talked about, that's a phase one trial, where the other trial is a phase two trial. But the data that actually came out for the combination of bertuximab-vidotin plus RCHOP showed a complete remission rate overall of about 65%. And then for the patients who actually had higher levels of expression of CD30, their CR rate was higher by about 10%, so closer to about 75%. There is also ongoing additional studies as correlative approaches within that trial, trying to see if there's anything about the microenvironment that might suggest which patients have a higher tendency of responding So one thing that was looked at was looking at the level of infiltrating CD3-positive T-cells. And so it was seen that patients who had a higher level of infiltration of CD3-positive T-cells within the microenvironment also had a trend towards higher level of complete remission rates. So definitely the combination, I think, is a valid approach. Right now, what you're seeing is that there's multiple RCHOP combinations, right? So we just spoke about the mTOR inhibitor of Everlimus plus RCHOP. 
Then you have now brentuximab, vidotin plus RCHOP. Then you also have lenalidomide plus RCHOP. So there's multiple different combination-based therapeutic strategies. And I think it's only going to be as these trials mature by going through phase two, phase three types of trials, randomized trials, that you can really start to maybe pick the winner. So I'm curious, it's always tough for people in practice and people like me to figure out when new agents really are exciting or not. But I see that Craig Moskowitz, Abstract 182, presented a new antibody drug conjugate in B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, SGN-CD19A, denentuzumab, mafidotin. What do you think about the data there? So this is a new antibody drug conjugate, as you mentioned. It links basically a CD19-directed antibody to, instead of Oristatin-E, which was used in and Oristatin-F. So this was a trial that we participated in. I treated patients on this clinical study. So what was seen is that patients, even if they had quite heavily pretreated disease and even refractory disease, actually did well. And so overall, when you look at the patients and their outcomes, overall response rate was about 50% and a complete remission rate approximately seen in a third of the patients, so a third of the patients entering complete remission. There was a unique, however, side effect seen with this drug in that these patients did develop what was termed to be superficial microcystic keratopathy. And that was seen in a high level of patients. So about 85% of patients developed at least some level of evidence of this. And so I think different than maybe having like grade one, let's say thrombocytopenia, where you know about it because you come in and it's checked on your lab and someone says, oh, well, your platelet count's a little bit low. You can have not necessarily a grade three or grade four event, you can have a grade one event, but still have that grade one event be impacting your vision at some level. And so what a lot of the patients would say is that it was more difficult for them to be able to read text. If they were following a recipe and cooking dinner, they couldn't often see the font within the cookbook or on their iPad to be able to really follow the recipe this side effect was reversible. It was generally well-managed with steroids, but it still is a potential side effect, I think, to keep track of as this drug goes on for further development. So let's talk a little bit about mantle cell lymphoma. We saw data from a trial that actually, I think, sort of crashed or didn't really happen, but ended up at least bringing out some kind of interesting data. Abstract 518, pre-transplant R-bendamustine induces high rates of mineral residual disease in mantle cell patients, S1106, comparing it to R-hyperzivad. I always thought that was kind of an interesting trial and challenging randomization. I guess it didn't actually happen. So one of the reasons why this trial stopped early is that it was difficult to collect some of the patients after they received the R-hyperzivad with R-methotrexate ARC. So those patients, then if they had a failed stem cell collection, of course, then weren't able to go on to Altolga stem cell transplant. You know, SWOG had done a look in the past as well, looking at using the R-hyperzivad-based backbone, which was developed at Anderson and popularized in terms of a frontline therapy approach. And what they had found even in the past was that it was difficult to get patients through an R-hyperceva-based strategy for mantle cell lymphoma in the community setting because of the close monitoring of counts that was needed, dose reductions, 
pauses within therapy, etc. And so this was basically a follow-up trial looking at then randomizing patients who were healthy, who were planned to be able to go on to an autologous stem cell transplant head-to-head with a comparison. Overall, the response rates that were actually seen for our bendamustine were actually quite comparable to those seen for the r hyperceva based approach. So overall response rate for our bendamustine frontline setting was 83%. And when you compare that to our hypersevad, our hypersevad was about 94%. What was interesting is that their CR rate for the our hypersevad, perhaps maybe because some of these patients came off treatment earlier, was actually lower than what has been typically in the past presented for our hypersevad. So they concluded that the CR rate for both was generally about equal, but their CR rate for our hyperceva was only like 35%. And I think that that's because the patients came off treatment early because of potential tolerability issues versus for the arbendamustine approach, it was 40%. And I think that that's quite comparable to past publications. So what's the next step in terms of you know, cooperative groups or research in mantle cell that you think is most important? So what you're seeing right now in the frontline setting is looks into rituximab bendamustine-based platforms in the frontline setting and then rituximab-based abrutinib platforms in the frontline setting. For patients who are generally thought to be chemotherapy candidates for more intensive chemotherapy regimens, and some of these also use a consolidation approach like the one that's going on at Anderson versus For patients who are older, who are not thought to be ideal transplant or more intensive chemotherapy-based patients, these patients are sometimes now receiving maintenance-based strategies with abrutinib. This concludes our program, and we should add a footnote that subsequent to recording this discussion, on February 16th, the FDA placed a full clinical hold on myelofibrosis trials exploring the JAK2-FLT3 inhibitor pacritinib following reports of patient deaths related to intracranial hemorrhage, cardiac failure, and cardiac arrest in the Phase 3 Persist 2 trial. Special thanks to our faculty, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Cancer Conference Update Ash Edition.